The Money Show. The Big Issue. Talking about the influence of war over the past 100 years on the economy. Joining us now is Dr. Catherine Burns, researcher at the Witz Institute of Economic and Social Research. Also on the line, we have, uh, we have Hamish Patterson, education coordinator at the National Museum of Military History. Good evening, Hamish. Hi there, how are you? Not It's great to have you on the show. A hundred years since the start of the First World War. That's, that, that, that's quite something. Yeah, it is actually a horrible, uh, uh, what we think we've had a horrible century when you look at it. Absolutely. Catherine, let's start with you. Just take us through the start of the First World War. I've got a few SMSs coming in here. One says, I know a lot about the Second World War. How did the First World War start? Well, in many ways, um, we could look at what happened at uh, just about 11 a.m. on July the 28th, 1914, which is, of course, 100 years ago. And that's when Austria-Hungary dispatched a telegraph message to Serbia, which can chill us even if we read it today. Um, this followed about a month of what we might consider almost absurd international diplomacy and internal bickering, which followed the assassination of the empire's archduke, Franz Ferdinand, in the city of Sarajevo. Um, and the imperial and royal government said in this telegram that it had no choice but to resort to the force of arms. And these words echoed, Austria-Hungary consequently considers herself henceforth in a state of war with Serbia. And then what followed was a number of, of different military interventions. Behind the scenes, you had um, these imperial rulers that were often cousins and relatives with each other, writing to each other and asking if there was a way to avoid war and and sort of de- dealing and double dealing and within days Russia ordered a general mobilization that's July the 31st Germany then declares war on Russia August the 1st Germany declares war on France France on Germany on August the 3rd and finally Britain declares war on Germany on August the 4th so those are the sort of bones of the lead up days and uh, from the point of view of this show in many ways we can see that the world economy has never fully recovered from that week of military madness. And um, it was also a moment that didn't escape the attention of Vladimir Lenin, who was uh, living in Polish Galicia at the time, thinking about a way to bring about workers' revolution. And he sent on the outbreak of the war almost what we might call today a tweet-like message to his mistress on yeah. a postcard saying, my dear, dear friend, best greetings on the commencement of the revolution in Russia. That's how he viewed the outbreak of war on today, 100 years ago. But isn't war a big opportunity? Yes, war presented opportunities. But I think after 100 years, it'll be interesting to see what my military historian colleague feels on the other side of the line. But 100 years later, I think the general opinion of economic historians the world over is that the world ha- has still not recovered in many ways from World War One, And those that gained from it uh, were a group that uh, were not able to spread the gains and the wealth to the majority. So it's interesting to have had Greg Mills in the studio a few minutes ago, and he's looked at how states that have recovered have done so. And I suppose the unified Germany, 20 years since its reunification, is teaching us a lesson of very slow and steady and cautious growth forward. But uh, Germany is still not recovered to the same level as it was in many ways before 
uh, World War One. The g- uh, GDP and the general wealth of each individual in Germany has seen enormously steady growth in the last 20 years, but it's still not at the level as it was at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century. So that's mm. extraordinary. Hamish, let's bring you in here. I mean, I remember Ronald Reagan saying, tear down that wall, Mr. Gorbachev. Has Germany made massive strides over the past two, two decades? How have they fared? I, I would say so. But, uh, you know, I've been looking at the the the, the, the figures, um, or, you know, the economic figures uh, of the First World War, and some, uh, some of the expenditure of um, ammunition, for instance. And it's horrific um, when you think that this wasn't productively spent. Mm. It, sh- it should have, okay, fair enough. But if you if you have a look at, say, Adolf Hitler, who came after that and got his country working, he came out second best. But you'd maybe think the United States, they were the winners and always the losers. They, they come out with nothing, don't they? Well, yes, the, the, the problem with uh, Germany... Um, is that um, there's a very good book, um, if you're talking about the Second World War, called The Wages of Destruction, which shows how certainly the initial Nazi um, economic miracle was financed on uh, stealing from the Jews. Mm, So the money came from there. Fair enough. And then they went into Austria and got the gold reserves there, Czechoslovakia ditto. And yes, uh, but one of the ironies of the First World War is Germany went to war with her best trading partner, Britain. Yeah. But what about war reparations? I mean, that was the big thing from Adolf Hitler after the First World War. He stood up and he said, oh, we don't want to pay these reparations anymore. We can't afford them. Maybe if Germany had been given a better chance after the First World War, Hamish, do you think uh, we could have avoided the second? I don't. Uh, you know, I think one of the problems was not so much monetary, but psychological. Um, Germany was a militaristic state on the uh, generated by Prussia, which was the main uh, powerhouse. The King of Prussia was also the German Emperor. And you've got, first of all, the Germans ended the, uh, went into the First World War expecting to win it, get extra territory, and as they had in 1871, get massive uh, reparations from their defeated opponents. Now, you get a state with that sort of mindset where to be a soldier, uh, in fact, if you were a professional, like a doctor or a university lecturer, and you weren't a officer of the reserve, your career could be blighted. So you get a militaristic country with uh, predicated on military um, ethos and that sort of thing. Going into war, they expect to win and they lose it. And then they lose territory and they, 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 they rather like, um, in fact, a beaten bully is one of the most pitiful sights in the world. They suddenly find themselves in, in problems. Also, the reparations is it's a bit of a two-edged sword because John Maynard Keynes was very pro-German. And um, if you look at the Versailles Treaty and you compare it to what the Germans did to the Russians at Brest-Litovsk, it's actually horrific, um, you know, what they were going to do to their beaten opponents. Mm. So, yes, uh, look, the problem was, of course, um, you know, I'm just looking, for example, um, if you, at the end of the um, First World War, just to give you an idea of what I've managed to pick up over the years, the British war debts were 136% of their gross domestic product. Mm. And I've just got a, got a very a nice statistical book. By um, 1918, Britain had made loans to the Dominions and the Allies almost equivalent to the um, national debt uh, servicing um, amount. So... <laughs> 
everybody was in a in a, in, a, in a financial squeeze. Yeah, yeah. And um, and we, we, you know the other problem for Britain certainly, a lot of British um, and this is an interesting thing from a military historian. A lot of what Britain earned prior to the First World War works the so-called invisible exports because British ships were carrying things for everybody around the world, and they lost that during the war. That is so interesting. Catherine, you're nodding. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that theme because really, if you think about it, Britain was uh, probably the most powerful uh, imperial machine as we went into World War One, And by the end of the war, uh, Britain has lost its position in global dominance. So we have to also bring South Africa, uh, East Africa, Anglophone, West Africa, the uh, Southeast Asian colonies of Britain, the imperial trade across the oceans, the power of Britain in places like Canada and also in the Caribbean, their strong and complex links to the United States. There's a, there's a global dimension to bring into this. And uh, if we think about the British War Cabinet as it was facing the winter of 1914, it was having to find ways of sustaining this huge expense that my colleague's been talking about. I mean, the enormous billions Spain, for example, on bullets, etc. And they had to do this using three main weapons, and all of these in turn depended on their uh, capillary powers across the world that they'd built up over the previous 200 years. They had to draw more taxes from British taxpayers and from um, their, their colonies and their dominions. They had to borrow and they had to print money. And they also raised taxes on things like alcohol and tobacco, indirect taxes. And they began to issue uh, war bonds. And, and they did this in a psychological and um, nationalistic way as well, which is very intriguing. They had to inspire the public to invest in the war effort. And people flocked to buy these so-called war bonds, these big colorful certificates that promised a financial return mm. and induced a feeling of national pride. But uh, if we look at it from uh, sort of the perspective of, of 90 and 100 years later, Later, um, these these war bonds have never been repaid. Now, on the one hand, it was an incredibly successful scheme because it raised more than three hundred billion pounds, a huge amount of money in today's uh, in today's value. And these schemes did help motor the British economy through victory. And of course, economies like the South African economy, where people worked sometimes without wages for periods during the war to continue to produce gold underground and to uh, create food and to create machinery and to support the war effort with all sorts of forms of labor. What's interesting is that the at the end of the war, the British government gap between government revenue and government spending was an astonishing 47.9% of national income. The deficit for 2014 in Britain, also reckoned to be of crisis proportions, is projected to be nearer to 6.8%. And so the British uh, economy had a massive debt and it ballooned at the end of the war to 127.5%. And that's a cost that Britain never recovered from. The big issue tonight, the influence of war over the past 100 years on the economy. How have countries recovered from war? Of course, the First World War started on this day 100 years ago. Also talking about the Second World War. Our Institute guest is Dr. Catherine Burns, researcher at Wits University's Institute of Economic and Social Research. And on the line, we've got Education Coordinator at the National Museum of Military History, Hamish Patterson. Hamish, let's start with you. I mean, looking at what happened to, to to Russia afterwards. We had the the Romanovs who were killed, the entire royal family taken out, and then, of course, Vladimir Lenin. Um, your thoughts on what happened over the next 60 years? Well, the, uh, one of the ironies, uh, once Lenin got into power by what was effectively a coup, 
was that suddenly he realised that some of the, uh, shall we say, ideology he'd been pushing wasn't actually helping. And he came in with a almost capitalistic new economic policy. And then, of course, when Stalin took over, you had the various five-year plans, which um, certainly um, gave Russia the industrial base that enabled her to fight the Second World War. But the, the human cost was horrendous. Um, Stalin, um, interestingly enough, uh, Stalin's great enemy, Leon Trotsky, said there was no difference between Stalin and Hitler. And uh, Russia, I think, uh, took a terrible blow, not only um, militarily, and and certainly in the Second World War, was something like 30 million war dead. Um, It was sort of... uh, received several very vicious blows over the century. And I don't know if they've even recovered now. Catherine, let's let's pick up from that. I mean, the Soviet Union's now become Russia. You've got Ukraine, Georgia, all the different countries. How has Russia fared since 1990? I think the... um the, the complex answer would take a very long time because there were areas of growth. There were areas where Russia uh, or the Soviet Union, compared to, say, for example, the United States, invested in, in new forms of, of central programs from Moscow, improved education, women's health, the entry of a large number of people into the economy. They strengthened many institutions. So it was there was huge loss of life. Um, the gulags, the effective concentration camps that Stalin set up, the massive pogroms, the undermining of food security, the undermining of individual liberties and freedoms. These have to be balanced against many gains. The United States um, was able to develop its uh, infrastructure and to draw many more people into uh, wage labor as a result of the New Deal programs. And in both cases, with different ideological ends, these were ways in which the state was getting involved much more in the economy. Conservative uh, economic historians decry this and say that ultimately neither of these societies tremendously benefited from the period of World War and that which followed. But uh, progressive and historians in the in the middle and far left of the field are far less settled about what the long-term economic consequences were for both societies as a result of the Second World War. The period of the Cold War that follows and the huge expenditure on, on military prowess and on proxy wars whether they're in Vietnam or Angola all over the world, those seem to have more agreement from economic historians across the spectrum and the costs to human development and to spending money on resources that would would build societies is is universally regarded as as shocking and that's where very interestingly the divided Germany begins to pull itself slowly but surely in the 1950s and 60s and eventually in the 70s and 80s towards a far more stable use of resources for the development of education, of health betterment of people and, and of slowly building on institutions that had some grip on Germany in the 19th century. So it's very interesting when we look at the United States now compared to 20 years ago when Germany reunified, when there was a huge amount of hubris about how the United States pathway to modernity and its experience of post-war was going to make it a global power for everyone. Everyone would copy the United States and the way forward. Nobody is making those arguments today. People, of course, are looking very cautiously at Vladimir Putin and Germany and his Mm what appear to be imperial and other ambitions. But everybody seems to be universally in agreement that the German economy is doing well and that their pathway into the future is the best possible. So it's not what we expected to be 20 years ago, is it? Sure.
No, absolutely not. I'm going to throw this one at you, Hamish. Uh, Vladimir okay. Putin, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of had a look at the Ukraine and said, yes, I'll take Crimea. He's got pro-Russian separatists who he's arming. And uh, do you think he's moving towards, well, I like the way the Soviet Union used to be. I'd like to be the king of the castle. Well, that, that's the definite opinion that I've certainly picked up from the um, media sources I've read. He seems to want to turn the clock back to, uh, well, uh, as the um, the Soviets did, they just basically took over the Tsarist Empire. And, um, of course, Stalin, um, when uh, in 1939 and 1940, just walked into the small Baltic countries. So I think there, there might be an, indeed Putin by his actions and his very callous remark when they, that airliner was shot down, um, is yes, he's, I think he's trying to put the the, um, the Russian Empire back together again. Um, and um, the, uh, considering the uh, the responses of some people, uh, I think he might, might be encouraged to do so. Very interesting. A lot of people may disagree with that. Um, Catherine, just a question, SMS here. Please ask why there is such a sad pattern of failure in Africa. Can South Africa learn from this? Well, the short answer to that is yes. There are sad patterns of failure also in many other parts of the world. Um, and I suppose that one of the things that historians, political theorists and economists are working on at many of the best universities in Southern Africa and the world is how to think about what creates um, opportunities into uh, economies that are stable and provides a growth of opportunity and resource for citizens rather than the opposite. And as uh, Greg Mills said in his discussion earlier, leadership does have a lot to do with that and so does the involvement and empowerment of the citizenry. One of the curses that many African countries have had in the 20th century, some people would describe as the resource curse. In other words, uh, finding oil or diamonds or gold and not building a strong enough state with the with with an empowered enough citizenry to guide and balance uh, a kleptocracy or a small group of elites from taking those resources and exporting them often into European banks and economies. So there's a there's a it's a very complex set of trajectories that come from that listener's question and the combination of the discussion we're having about World War One and its impact now and the discussion you had with Greg Mills earlier it begins to unpack that for us. I think. Mm. Hamish, hey, just very quickly from you, South Africa can learn for the past one hundred years of world history i i think the the the, the, the big lesson is um uh, education uh, spending money on it uh, encourage merit rather than patronage and making things possible for the people who are humane employers and um, encourage people to be productive to do so and then i think the prospects are limitless Love it, love it, love it. Education coordinator at the National Museum of Military History, Hamish Patterson. And uh, Catherine, Dr. Catherine Burns, research at Wits University's Institute of Economic and Social Research. I think we all agree we could, we could chat about this for the next 100 years, but hopefully, Catherine, a, a positive result in, 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 in uh, years to come. Yes, and if I can just end by saying that um, there are not many good stories that we can get out of World War One, but I'd like to end on two quick ones. The entry of women into wage labor and also into claims for suffering 
suffrage and citizenship across the world from the Soviet Union through, at least in the case of white women in South Africa, beginning to break open that space and certainly across the northern hemispheres of the world. And then end on perhaps a very funny story and quite poignant that at the start of World War I, there were just a dozen uh, women who worked in the Bank of England. And by the end of World War I, effectively 2,500 women ran the Bank of England with only a couple yeah. of men supporting them. And in fact, it's, uh, they, they then went back into other forms of work at the end of World War I and left the bank. And the Bank of England still today doesn't have the same proportion of women in it. So perhaps one of the lessons to draw from World War I is draw women into the economy more and it will help raise the development level, spending on education and on social services and justice rather than on military budgets. Love it, love it. Dr. Catherine Burns on The Money Show.